Oh, darling, look. Thanksgiving turkeys. Oh, look at the way they foam at the mouth. Like beautiful sets of beer. Not as beautiful as... I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Turkey fact number 12. Turkeys are filled with enough L-tryptophan to knock you on your sorry Thanksgiving ass. Greetings and welcome to War Council, a hobby-centered podcast for wargamers and gaming and miniature enthusiasts. My name's Edward Winterrose and we're having something of a shake-up. Joining me as co-host for the Thanksgiving Shoe is Hunter and to some degree Caleb, both of whom are at White Metal Games. We are going to be having our usual pre-recorded skit in a moment, but first I wanted to get into a little of what's coming up this week. We're going to be looking into what's new in the Games Workshop community, which this week entails the Psychic Awakening, as well as miniatures for Mephiston and Dared Gabo. In What's in the Pipe, we'll be speaking about a Necromunda battle report we're working on. We'll be speaking with Caleb about changes to the business model here at White Metal Games, I'll be speaking with Hunter regarding the Primaris Space Marines, too. We'll also be having a two-minute rant as well. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. Gene Seed Now. The new do-it-yourself test to see if you have what it takes to become one of the many. The angry. The Space Marines. Millions across the vast hell of space have uncovered traces of just the right Primarch genes passed down through the centuries that allowed them to receive the most holy, sacred, and of course necessarily painful surgeries required to survive in the righteous armor of the Adeptus Astartes. Gene Seed Now doesn't just confirm whether or not the apothecary should be paying you a visit for your valuable genetic material, it also identifies the Primarch whose DNA you share, and which organizations to apply to, and of course, who to receive rehabilitation from after your special day. This simple tool, once very carefully inserted into the appropriate orifices, is as easy as pulling a trigger, and the amount of pain is quite negligible. You may only need a day or three to recover, but what's half a week, when the rest of your existence may in fact be ordained? Don't wait. Contact the nearest representative of the Adeptus Mechanicus or the Servo Skull thereof, and ask for Gene Seed now, today. We command that you'll be glad you did. Here's the thing about when What's New Pussycat plays. What's new Pussycat? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's new Pussycat? We're getting into the segment now for What's New. I've got Hunter with me. He's going to actually be co-hosting the show with me now. We just made that decision and we're, of course, recording these out of sequence. So you can tell, can't you? Hello, audience. Hello. So, getting right into this sort of thing, what got a box in your hand right now? Tell me about what you've got. All right, so this is a recently released product, in fact, brand new release. I uh, went on for pre-sale last Friday. 
and is now out in stores. The Ripa's Snarlfangs Warband for Warhammer Underworld's Beastgrave, a favorite game of mine in recent years. Okay, so I'm seeing wolves on the sprues, and looking at what's on the wolves on the box, this is a goblin tribe, isn't it? Yes, they're based off an uh, older fantasy faction, where you'd have wandering tribes of goblins and goblin wolf riders. So it's nice to see a bit of a throwback to that old setting within the modern mortal realms. Okay, looking at this, it's very Lord of the Ringsy almost, with the wargs It really the is, yeah. But they've kind of got sort of like a Mongolian Raiders flavor with like the little hats they wear. Like the extreme miniature version of the raiding ogres that ride their mounts, which are not tiny. Kind of, like kind of. But the, I think these guys may have been a little bit before the ogres. I could be wrong. I didn't play fantasy. I just know a lot about it secondhand. I tend to lean towards <clears throat> science fiction myself, given a choice between that and fantasy. Mm. I like them both. I'll play them both, but... Yeah, give me guns instead of a sword any day. Yeah, yeah, same here, though I have to admit I've been quite taken by the Underworld setting. I feel like it really is a nice fit. I don't think Underworlds would work quite as well in the 40k setting. We didn't play, when you and I played Underworlds that one time, that was completely fantasy, even though it Mm -hmm. felt a bit like a Warhammer group I was facing when I was facing your Scooby gang. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I had fun with that. For those of you who didn't actually hear that blog, he he won, by the way. Congratulations. Yeah, well, that was one of the hardest warbands to win with. The the uh, I, I just call them the Scooby Gang because you have everybody you need plus, like, the caveman from Scooby-Doo. And you've got a fella who's in white with the orange thing around his neck. You've yes. got the magic user in the back in the orange with a red bottom. Yeah, I, Essentially, I'm realizing about... Ten minutes in, I'm fighting the Scooby Gang. And they're about as uh, squishy as you'd imagine, too. They weren't as squishy when I faced off with I them. I just like got lucky, man. The boys. Like, I've been noticing that Beastgrave has been having some power creep. So, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I've just noticed that a lot of Shadespire and Night Vault warbands are slowly being made obsolete by the Beastgrave factions. And while I like seeing this power increase, I wonder... It's, it kind of makes it interesting, because you, you now have a hard mode for Warhammer Underworlds. And for the benefit of the listeners, people like me who may not understand what power creep is, kind of explain the term a little. So, power creep is more or less exactly what it sounds like. If any of you are familiar with card games like Magic the Gathering, um, it's slowly it's the slow introduction of game mechanics that become more powerful for less of a cost. There's usually this concept of cost or uh, efficiency in these kinds of collectible card games or strategy games. But in the context of a game like Warhammer or other trading card games like Magic, Power Creep is a introduction into the current meta as opposed to the old meta. As Warhammer Underworlds is becoming a competitive game, much like Magic the Gathering. I'm using Magic the Gathering here because it's what I'm most familiar with. I used to play Standard sometime in like 2014, 2015. But yeah, so it looks like Warhammer Underworlds is getting more more explosive, is what I'd like to call it. There are fewer dead rounds, fewer like uh, missed opportunities, or I won't I don't want to say wasted rounds, but just there's strictly better options. It struck me as a pretty fast paced and well, I'll use the word cutthroat game. Oh, already. absolutely. Cutthroat is what this partially what makes it so amazing. I did see something. I mean, aren't they starting tournament plays for? 
Yes, those are, now? that's a recent uh, addition, and I think the they're introducing that for a bunch of their games, including Warcry. Kill Team's already been a thing, I believe. But yeah, the um, it's a recent addition for this game, which been which has been around for about two years now, and it's finally getting like an official competitive organization, which I'm I'm excited to see. I might have to attend some local ones if I find the time. Now, moving on from Beastgrave, <laughs> tell me a little bit about what you know about Psychic Awakening. I mean, I know I've been reading on it a little bit, and it seems like they're finally advancing a plot that's been existent and stagnant for years in Warhammer 40k. Yes, yes, there has been, there's always been like a little bit of advancement throughout the decades. With the release of 8th edition and the introduction of the Primaris Marines, the story has been on a more, it's less start and stop and more continuous flow. Like, with the introduction of the Age of Sigmar and basically a, a whole bunch of renovations at Games Workshop in the mid tens. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna start talk, calling them the tens here soon, everybody. Hey, I call the zeros the aughts. Yeah, yeah, my my roommate does that too. Both fantasy, or rather, Age of Sigmar now and 40k have both been on a steady flow of time. Since then, this was something I always appreciated with Thassa games back in the 1990s. Both BattleTech and Shadowrun, they had this ongoing narrative that was progressing further and further and further. You started off in, like, say, 2049 in Shadowrun, and the latest edition, they've actually kept that going, even though the property has changed hands. They're keeping that flow going. I mean, now you're starting, I think, in the latest edition is like 2075 or 2090, perhaps. Interesting. I'm glad this is communicating itself over to Games Workshop, because if there is no advancement, there's really... I mean, I'm wondering what the fighting is for, because nothing ever gets achieved if the story goes nowhere. That is an aspect of the the grimdark setting is that it's a endless cycle of war. So there's there is a certain appeal to that. They're going to keep changing things, but they're not going to change things too much. We kind of have to have a never-ending conflict or else what's the point of having all these massive armies? Right. The um that we are going to see I, I have no doubt we're going to see small developments. Like I believe there was a bit of a cliffhanger with Fabius Bile, who's a famous chaos marine apothecary turned mad scientist who has all these experimentations, and he took an interest in the Primaris initiative. I wondered if there was going to be a chaotic response to the Primaris program. Well, that seems to still be in the works, or at least still kind of in the background. There hasn't been any definitive change one way or another, but that still seems to be hinted in the background. Though, and getting into the lore segment later on with Hunter here, we're going to be talking about the Primaris program in a bit. <laughs> yes, yes, but more importantly, in reference to the Psychic Awakening, this is focusing on factions that have some connection to psychic powers within the 40k universe. So with the most, the first one, the Blood of the Phoenix, it released some supplements for the Eldar. And we were kind of looking at how it affects our Eldari and how it's sort of spawning civil war between them. Though, basically what we were getting with Blood of the Phoenix, what I understood was, now that the Rift has become more prominent in the galaxy, it's spewing this sort of ambient haze of evil everywhere. Yes, And, and anyone with psychic talent or psychic sensitivity, this is affecting them 
on the whole as a race. And let me tie this back to when we were talking about the Primaris thing. It wasn't just the Primaris. It was the opening of the Eye of Terror and the conquering of Cadia. The whole thing that the Warhammers had in the background that never really got resolved was Abaddon's Black Crusades. The idea was that he had done 12 and all of them were failures, quote-unquote, and this... This had some interesting fan reaction. Apparently, the Black Crusades were not total failures. They were slow erosions at the foundation of the Gate of Cadia. These pylons, or these things that were basically warding off chaos, Abaddon had been slowly chipping away at them. And on the 13th campaign, he was able to break through, basically tear the galaxy a new one, and Ooh. like you saw how big that was. I did. I it was smaller. It was a lot more localized before the Thirteenth Black Crusade, and that's what the whole everything that introduced Eighth Edition and the announcement of like the Plastic Abaddon and like Plastic Gulliman, like all that. They're about spaced about a year or so apart, but all those events were tied to the Eye of Terror basically opening and tearing across the known galaxy and basically cutting off certain locations from each other, such as Baal, the Blood Angel's homeworld, was basically cut off from the rest of the Imperium for much of this time. Getting back to Psychic Awakening again, the one that's just coming out, Faith and Fury, whereas Blood of the Phoenix was Ildari, Faith and Fury is focusing more on humans now. Yes, so specifically the uh, the Space Marines factions. All of your mainstay Chaos factions, minus the Death Guard and the Thousand Sons, I believe, and of course the World Eaters, because World Eaters hate psychics, or psychers, are getting spe- their own specialized uh, psychic powers, relics. We're also seeing the reintroduction of Demon Weapons, which is an older edition thing. Something about that where you can use the, your psychic talent to work with these weapons, but you have to be able to control it. Yes, It's not just the Chaos Marines that have access access to these, but the controversial Grey Knights, such as Castell and Crow, they're not the only ones to use demon weapons. Grey Knights also use them on occasion. How are they not caught by the Inquisition for that sort of thing? Because they work with the Radical Inquisitors. Okay. They're on the side of the Inquisitors where it's like, to fight the demons, we must use the demons. Whereas the Puritan Inquisitors are like, no, shun chaos, shun Xenos, don't touch that. You're you're going to get some chaos on you. Yeah, you're going to get some chaos on you, and we're not going to give you any pity when you do. So as you can imagine, the Inquisition has, uh, depending on what kind of Inquisitor you get, you're a different flavor of screwed if you come under their scrutiny. There's some stories on the Warhammer community posts that have been coming out about this. Little snippets of fiction to kind of give you an impression what Mm -hmm. the Faith and Fury thing is about. I was reading those for a blog post, and I get the feeling that not only is it just this whole thing with the psychically active Marines, but this haze of evil that's sort of intensifying over the entire galaxy is causing discord in just general populations as well. People turning to more radicalized and in Warhammer 40k heretic religions to try and deal with the malaise that's settling over their minds. Yes, though part of that is just the ever-present taint of the warp. It's it seems to be the the plants are starting to get sort of saturated in it with with what with, with the the rift being opened. In addition to our uh, chaos fellows, the Black Templars are filled with a ever-present zeal and hatred, even more so in this case for uh, witchcraft. Witchcraft. Yes, that's what they refer to as uh, sorcery. 
Okay. Or warp use, using. That's the thing. Black Templars do not employ librarians, as they are seen as a taint and stain upon humanity, completely ignoring the fact that the Emperor himself was a psyker. They just gloss over that because they're like, no, no, the Emperor was, uh, was a god. He didn't use psychic powers. He had god powers. There's a difference, everybody. We've gone into this dogma, and we're sticking with it. Yep. So, big... one thing I did see with the Faith and Fury stuff, they're actually introducing Chaos Sorcerer minis. They've always had Chaos Sorcerers. Uh, these are just new sculpts. They are quite impressive, of course. The, I like how they um, have sort of a throwback to the old metal ones with these sort of like like dragon head uh, backpack exhaust ports. I was looking at those a little bit earlier today, as a matter of fact. They looked quite gruesome, or at least rather impressive. Mm, grotesque is how I'd probably describe them. One other mini that was coming out that everybody seems really excited for, as far as librarians, we've got Mephiston coming back. Yes, the Lord of Death Returns. This is a blood angel, yes? Yes, he is. He is the chief librarian of the Blood Angels. He is not just a Blood Angels librarian, but he's the chief librarian. The Blood Angels librarian. The, the first and foremost of all Blood Angels librarians, who also is the only one to have conquered the Black Rage. I read about the Black Rage a little bit. I have not done a blog post on the Blood Angels yet. They will probably be coming soon because of this release. Yeah, yeah. Y your first impression of them was that they're some kind of like like space vampires. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you, but you somehow well, and again, no one had. I had to tell you this because it, it's not obvious. It seemed like you're under the impression that these would actually be a bad thing for them to have Primaris Marines. Yeah. I mean, why would you make someone afflicted with vampirism bigger and stronger, yeah. especially someone prone to, say, the Black Rage or the Red Thirst. In his case, however, he's conquered that. Honestly, when, when the Blood Angels are one of the most good forces within the Imperium and they have this, this bloodthirst, it really kind of puts in, into perspective just how bad things are in the 41st millennium. Like, this is what we have to work with, but we're fine with that. Yeah, these, these are the one, guys you want to come save you. We eventually sort of arrived at the idea that this wasn't so much space vampires, like Salem's Lot kind of vampires. This was more like space Alucards from Castlevania, like yeah. heroic types who mm -hmm. are just happen to have this thirst. I'm not terribly up to date on Sanguinius, the Primarch. I don't know if he had a form of the Red Thirst. But I do know that the, he still did have, like, sort of the, the blood theme and an important part of what makes the Black Rage the Black Rage is his death at the hands of Horus. Since Sanguinius was a powerful psyker, he, he left a powerful psychic imprint on his... Entire chapter. Exactly. And so as the, um, the Red Thirst becomes more intense, the Black Rage is a phenomenon that happens to Blood Angels or, and their successors where they see themselves in the eyes of Sanguinius before Horus in his dying moments trying to protect the Emperor, and they just sort of have this berserk fury overcome them. Where the others kind of have to take them in hand, I guess. Yeah, they basically have to inter them into their own companies called Death Companies, where they either slaughter all their enemies or die in a mad rush to take on the enemy. 
I guess dementia isn't quite the right term. It's like a... Because you're not forgetting things. It's a delusion, sort of. I mean, you're still you, but everything is filtered through this all-consuming rage. Yeah. Of course, the vampiric image isn't helped by the fact that Mephiston here is totally wearing the Bram Stoker's Dracula armor from the 1990s movie. Yes, totally not. Yeah, there's there's um there's a lot of pop culture references in Warhammer, and there always will be. There's no escaping it. I think that kind of lends to its uh, charm. It disarms the grimdark for me, actually. Oh, absolutely. It's it's. There's a bit of tongue in cheek there that makes it not a horribly oppressive thing to me. The setting takes itself seriously, but the hobby doesn't. If that makes sense. There's enough there to that you can chuckle at or sort of take some uh, some amusement in, especially the orcs. The orcs are the best example of the setting taking itself seriously, but the the actual hobby not. There was one other thing that was kind of released or is sort of new, kind of backs that up. The Red Gobbo. Yes. Though I think that's just, they do holiday promotional minis on occasion. They did one for Grom Brindle, the White Dwarf, a couple years ago, uh, where he's in, like, Space Marine armor, but he's still a dwarf, so it's dwarf-sized Space Marine armor. But the Red Gobbo, isn't he, like, some sort of socialist uprising for yes, goblins? Yes, he absolutely is. He's a he's basically the uh, the goblin revolutionary committee. He's, he is the revolution. He is, and he <laughs> wears red. He's about, like... Releasing the grots from their orc oppressors. It's very, <laughs> it's very over the top, and it, it all kind of ties into like the old lore where like the orcs were kind of like a mixture of Wehrmacht and also the Red Army, depending on how you saw them. They kind of had sort of like that thing going from, especially if you see the Storm Boys. They've kind of got the style helms and uh, basically what you're seeing on the front in the, all the pictures back in World War Two but between the Germans and the Russians. Yes, yes, I'm trying not to. <laughs> My name is Leon Grotsky. <laughs> Grotsky. Okay, we've got a name. Leon Grotsky, I fight, I am for, here to I fight the oppressors pam- from my brethren. I have, have pamphlets from Red Gobbo himself. Together we shall own the means of production. Do you have grenades? <laughs> yeah, the new miniature hat. He's got a Santa bag full of grenades. <laughs> yes, and a wish list. So as far as new stuff goes on Facebook, one thing I saw this week, just a couple of days ago, Brian posted a bunch of pictures of finished pieces of the big cathedral he's been working on for a few months. But so much of this was so hyper-detailed, and you can see all the work he's put into it over the months, especially the pipe organ, which I've mentioned in previous Mm. episodes. I'm just really enamored with it. The pipe organ, not to ruin the magic, that was like a later project, and I think that was, I don't know, when it was more realized. The statue, like the, the bust of the statue was probably one of the more long investment projects. I watched that grow from basically an armature with foam sprayed all over it, and he's just sort of sculpting this thing over time. Yeah. Adding greebles to the eyes and stuff like that. It was interesting to watch. I've done some sculpting in art school, but Especially nothing consi- on that scale. Sorry. Especially considering that's a subtractive sculpting. He wasn't yeah. just adding things on. He was like most he was carving away chunks that he wasn't gonna get back. I always find that an interesting aspect of the sculpting art. And here's the funny thing. Brian had never tried something like that before. He had never actually sculpted like a human head, head or bust like that before. 
gosh, okay, uh, I have to go and compliment him again on this. If he's he chose the right name for his studio, Talented Lad. <laughs> okay, I didn't know that either. He named it after an upgrade in Mordheim. If you're familiar with Mordheim, it was a... Um, it was a half role-playing, half skirmish game set in the old world, in the so like in the vampire counts territory, where basically everything from zombies to skaven rat people and vampires, skaven. mummies, skaven. just or just you know chaos cults would show up, and you'd basically be the town militia fighting to protect the towns, burn all the monsters, witches, and evil rat people. One other last new thing I saw, this is something I saw in the rentals, really. Your Orlock team Mm -hmm. is up for rental now, and we'll be talking about that in a little bit in the What's in the Pipe thing as well. But, I mean, tell me a little bit about the Orlock team that you came up with. Oh, yes. So... It didn't start as a Necromunda gang. I think it just kind of settled into that niche nicely, especially considering the Book of Ruin that just came out for as a rule supplement. I had no idea this was in the works, but apparently you can take Chaos or Gene Stealer tainted uh, gangs, like vanilla gangs from Necromunda. So when I chose the Orlock bodies, I was thinking I'm making a Gene Stealer kill team, a Gene Stealer Colts kill team, for Warhammer 40K's Kill Team game. You were kind of remixing to start with, and then they come out with rules for exactly that. For Necromunda, which was was amazingly convenient, I think. So, I mean, there should be a nice demand to get these people on their tables, yeah? I hope so. The um, the idea was, I didn't just want to be Orlock Gang, I wanted to sort of up, play up the sort of the biker aesthetic of them. I gave the, um, the leader, like, two uh, chain whips... Which actually, we make a nice analog for the bone whips in the Gene Stiller Colts. I gave them a straight-up Gene Stiller with like a collar and chain, so he's like the mascot. I was calling him Spot, I was calling him Fido, I was calling him George when I was looking at the pictures earlier. Yeah. He was never the same thing twice. <laughs> yes. Well, my, the name I came from was Spike, because of the collar. Well, of course, <laughs> of Spike. Course. <laughs> Why not? But you can call him whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, you can call him whatever he wants. He's not going to come when you call. Yeah. He pays no heed to his master's voice. I made an effort to make them visually distinct, too, because the Orlock bodies are all more or less the same design, but there's a distinction between the hybrid acolytes and the hybrid metamorphs. All I remember is the gene stealer and bald guys with goggles and serops. So the distinction I made for the metamorphs between the acolytes is that the metamorphs have usually have an extra arm. Mo- a lot of them have extra arms, but the metamorphs get access to things like the heavy rock cutters. They're basically the melee brute squad. I'm on the brute squad. You are the brute squad. So the metamorphs have access to explosives, hand flamers, uh, rock cutters, just very... Things you might need an extra arm to lope about. Yes, and that makes extra fun rules in Necromunda, according to Brian. He was telling me how he's just cutting through every single door in the game, thanks to that one guy with the heavy rock saw. I'll let him tell you how that story ends in the battle report, which we're currently producing. Right. I'm going to end the What's New segment for right now. Mm -hmm. So we will be back right after this.
So Caleb, what we've been doing up until now is more commission-based services uh, that I understand. Yeah, we, were, we always had an origin as a commission service. That was where we began many, many years ago. And um, that has been um, a hallmark of our service since the beginning. Um, I guess you might say it's a foundation of our service. And now that we're going to get into the next decade and moving on, I know we talked before in the first episode I came on with how things had gone so well and the podcast was put by the wayside for a bit and now things have changed so much that we're going to get into a new business model altogether. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, essentially when any commission studio starts, because there's not like a handbook for this, you generally tend to look at what other people are doing and price accordingly. Mm. So if, if some of your neighbors or other commission artists are charging 10 or $15 a model, that's what you do, which in retrospect is a really bad way to price. It's really not effective because you don't know what, you know, Joey down the block, his life is like. You don't know what his overhead is like. You don't know what his circumstances are like. He could very well be uh, a retired war veteran that's just doing it for fun, or he could be a high schooler. Um, so trying to price against services like that is just really useless, in my opinion. He might not have done his market research, and yeah. he may be drastically underpricing himself, and therefore you, if you follow his model, right? And, and to, to their credit, they may very well be pricing the way that they want to price for themselves as a hobbyist, mm -hmm. but it's not a way to support yourself as a business. One of the things we learned over the years was that we had a need for sustainable income. Well, yeah. um, and it, it's kind of like if you think of it this way, when things are really, really good, it's sort of like having like an, uh, an avalanche dropping on you. And the avalanche might be gold, but it still, it still buries you. Right. Um, so the money that was coming in was great and fast and loose, and we were very happy with it. But it was hard to maintain in terms of a schedule, and it was kind of a feast or famine scenario. A business would be better served with a long-term, sustainable, reliable income stream. And this kind of runs hand-in-hand hand with clients that have large collections that they, they would be better served to break their collections down over time, over months, or years in some cases. Because there's always new models coming out and clients are always buying new models. If they're not keeping pace with, their, with painting, uh, then they, they're always going to have a closet full of models or, or a gray tide, as, as some people have called it. I actually did a post about that yeah. using your term for that. You were right. calling it stemming the gray tide yeah. as it overwhelms you. Well, and we're all guilty of it to a degree. Um, it's easier to buy than it is to paint. Uh, it's certainly cheap, faster. Uh, you can buy a box of models in seconds, but painting it takes days. Eyes bigger than your work top. Exactly. So we developed a, a, a kind of took a step back from the commission service industry and sort of took a hard look at what I thought the business should be. And I saw in other industries retainers. Um, and retainers don't only apply to lawyers, but they also apply to very basic things. For example, uh, we have a membership at a local movie theater, and essentially we pay a flat fee per month and we see X number of movies. If we go to the movies, great. If we don't, they, we, they still collect the same price. Right. So I used the same logic and applied it to the commission industry, that if a client had uh, a set amount per month that they paid, then all we had to do was figure out how we evaluated that time based on the hour. So, for example, if a client has a budget of $500 a month, we just had to figure out what we could do for that $500. And to incentivize them, we looked for other ways to make the program more viable. So beyond just simply um, breaking it down per hour, we also offer discounts at our web store, free membership for our video membership, uh, free shipping and handling. And more importantly, the biggest benefit really is you see your collection 
uh, whittled down over time, brought more manageable, and you can start to enjoy the models that you've just been hatching, setting on your shelf. Right. So really, the whole goal of this is sort of to build a relationship with clients over time and to not get focused on the cost per model, because that's where a lot of people get hung up. If they, if they say, I have a thousand models, and even if you evaluate the project at like $10 a model, it's $10,000. Well, very few people have $10,000. Right. Especially these, in this day and age, and especially if you're buying models. And, and we don't want to tell clients how to spend their disposable income. But if they don't want to keep looking at a closet full of models, they have to develop a plan to start to knock those down. And that was kind of what the collector subscription service was designed for, was to give them a practical way to do so. Um, it, it's a very, in my opinion, it's a new program. It's a pilot program. I haven't seen any other commission services trying it. Um, I like to try new things like this when I can because of the fact that just because a commission service has worked one way in the past doesn't mean it has to always work that way. I mean, essentially, clients give us money and they trade their money for our time to work on their models. So all the collector does is just distill that down to its core. Instead of spending time on lengthy estimates and prattling back and forth over half a dozen estimates about price and, well, why does it cost this and why doesn't it cost that? And more importantly, one of the problems we've run into over the years is that clients will ask us for estimates on things that we've never worked on. So we're guesstimating at best. So we'll, if they ask for this new demon lord and we don't know how long it takes to assemble or paint, we're just making up the numbers. And sometimes those numbers are in their favor, but sometimes they're not. And we're guesstimating to be on the safe side of things, which means that someone is being penalized. Either the client is being overbilled or we are underbilling, and no one wins in that analogy. But with a subscription membership, we're billing for an accurate amount of time each month. The models are being completed in a steady cadence each month. They're being mailed off to them each month. And in addition to that, we're offering things like product credit. So even if they don't have a model with us, uh, like at the time, like let's say they, their life is busy and they didn't have time to send us anything, we can use the product credit to cash it in and get something for them. So there's always something to work on. Um, so if they're a Space Marine player and, and they want the new character, they just let us know, hey, use my product credit to get that. And so by taking the guesswork out on both sides, right. each side benefits. Yeah, absolutely. They get all the product they get, you get all the income you need to get. Right. Both of us have work to do. It's all good. And not only that, but also over time, and this is sort of something we've noticed, is that when clients repeat projects, and they tend to, a client that orders a, um, a party of orcs one month may decide he wants to expand it to an army of orcs the next month. And so if he says match the existing work you've already done, well, we've already done the lion's share of the work the first time by learning the color scheme and by keeping notes on the color scheme. So in fact, the project will get faster. And what that means is that the client will get more for his money. Now, in the old system of, of doing miniatures, clients are charged a flat rate per model for the most part. So if an orc costs $15, it costs $15 no matter if it took two hours or two minutes. And the problem with that system is that it essentially penalizes the client for having a big collection, and it penalizes us in a way, what well, doesn't penalize us, essentially we get gratified by it because if we get faster, we get rewarded. But I don't know, it just it just felt like over time the system was old and needed a revision. I can see how that would work. I mean, if somebody's coming at you with, say, all right, I've got orcs this month, I've, now I've got an elf tribe this month, now yeah. I've got humans, now I've got space marines, you're researching and coming up with colorways for right. each one of these, and it slows down. But the more you get familiar with these right. fellows, the more you get 
familiar with what their needs and wants, right. what they tend to play, and what they have done in the past. You can repeat that over time, over and over, and really kind of turn that out from your notes. Yeah, exactly. Because one of the things we've learned over time is that every client has preferences. One client might like a model one particular way and might insist that the models look factory fresh. Another model might like their models weathered and dirty. So the two clients can't agree on what they like, which means that pricing is sort of irrelevant. Uh, pricing a model at $15 for two different clients with two different opinions is kind of a, is kind of a wash. Um, so instead of that, focusing on what the clients do want and learning those preference servers over time means that we get faster at the commission, which means the client gets more value for their money. And all we had to do was not fixate on the price per model, but rather focus on the value of the time. Um, essentially, that's always been what a commission is. is you know, when a laborer says, I can build your deck in three days, and then they tell you a price, what they're telling you is, I evaluate my time this way. Some of that time was always going to be relegated to gathering materials and putting those materials away. Same thing with a new project. If we're learning a new color scheme for your army and learning what you like about it, the first couple times we do the color scheme, we're going to be getting our legs under us. So that means that we're going to be sending you photos, getting your opinions, you know, taking stock of what you like and what you don't like, refining it. And eventually, we're going to get it the way exactly the way you want it. And at that point, then it's just assembly line cranking it out. Some people call that batch painting. And batch painting is where painting gets really fast. I mean, not fast in terms, I mean, it's, it's always going to be a time-consuming thing to paint a model. That being said, it is fast as it can be when we refine the colors exactly how you want. And this isn't anything hugely new. It's new in the 21st century and right. perhaps the 20th. But artists working on patronage yeah. and just being on retainer for sure. people who hired them, this is an older Renaissance idea. Yeah, sure. Mighty artists like Leonardo da Vinci, they were retained artists. Right. Um, and it's obviously the kind of thing that I, I, not only do I like being, you know, having us being compared to great Renaissance painters, <laughs> but on the other side of the coin, too, is that the estimate system, as it has been in the past, um, in my opinion, is just, is just a little outdated. We talk about how when you're just basing it on the time, they get their product, you get the commission, and everybody's happy, but you're still talking about people who might have lots and lots of disposable income, lots of models that need to be done. This doesn't get into people who might be on the lower end of the market who have to save up to maybe get a battle squad or a tank or something like that. And you've got whole groups of people, and I think I brought this up once when I was first hearing it from you, was the idea that whole gaming groups could get together and buy themselves a membership and kind of send stuff in on a timeshare model. Like, this month, Jimmy gets to send in his tank. Next month, Billy gets to send in her um, yeah. battle sisters. Yeah, I mean, we've heard of club memberships before in that way. And I think that, um, you know, this is something that European countries are more familiar with. Sharing things. Sharing parking spaces. Sharing uh, houses. Um, living closer together. That sort of thing. American culture is much more like diversified. We value our space and we value our stuff. And so as a result of which, sharing is kind of a foreign concept. When you think about something like this, yeah, price has always been a deterrent. And more to that point, we've seen clients get hung up on price any number of ways over the years, whether it be the price per model and how we valued it, 
or even if it is a complicated model and trying to explain to them what the value of it is. But more importantly, when they have big eyes uh, for a big collection and then we tell them the price, a lot of times they would get dissuaded to the point of just simply doing nothing. Or put another way, the project is so expensive they'd rather have nothing than have anything. Which for me was always very frustrating because not only do we get caught up on the price of the model, which would be a deterrent, but they're looking at an avalanche of models and they're saying, where do you even start? And what we're saying is just start at the bottom, start at the beginning. For people who want to get together and organize that in terms of like getting the best value for your money, like a club membership or a group of people that want to share armies and share models, I think that's a great idea, honestly. Um, we've, we've seen other people do something like that um, with uh, donations and sort of club club packages i think they kind of call them that we tried something like this years ago called tandem commissions the basic concept of that was is that when we would put together a project let's say sisters of battle for sake of this discussion okay um, we might decide we're going to do a sisters of battle project and we would try to get a bunch of clients on board with that at one time so we could paint them all the same way and the idea would be that clients would be able to benefit from batch painting even though uh, they would be part of a larger group. So if, if we had 10 people sign up for this, uh, it means that we're only pulling the paints one time. We're only making the recipe one time. So all of the time on the project spent on their project was just spent on the actual painting of the models, which means that they're not paying for anything unnecessary. They're not paying for us to, to gather our notes and to figure out things. The compromise there was they had to agree to have it painted in like a canonical style. So the Sisters of Battle couldn't be something particular. It would have to be something that was relatively canon-based and, and normal, for lack of a better word. Something that could be standardized and turned out on a regular right. basis. Something that be, could be cranked out kind of assembly line style. Mm-hmm. Um, and for clients, for a lot of clients, that's a no-brainer. They, they see an army they like or a model they like or a color scheme, and that makes perfect sense. They're willing to sacrifice um, uniqueness for price. And so that was a good trade. Unfortunately, tandem commissions just never really took off. So we, we kept it in our back burner. And whenever something like that doesn't work, it doesn't mean I never try it again. It just simply means that I try to find a way to reform it. Now, with the new subscription-based platform, at the highest levels, to go back to disposable income, you're 100% right. Most people don't have the amount of disposable income to get the best value out of the project. At the highest level of the subscription currently at the time of launch, it's $1,600 a month, which is more money than most people have. The completionist one. That's correct. Okay. Now, for that rate, they get a full 40-hour week, though. And the thing is, is that you don't have to renew your subscription every month. If you decide you want to do that one month, you're actually getting a significant discount on our standard rates or what we call traditional commissions. So even doing it for just one month as a pocket project is a good idea. So to put this in in context, let's say that there was an army or a project a, a client wanted to do, and we guesstimate the project would take about 40 hours. Under the old system, that project might cost twice what it would, because you're billing per model. That's right. We're billing per model versus billing in a sustainable way. And from our perspective, if we have a sustainable stream of income, then we can manage our books better. We can manage our finances better. And it means we don't have to play this uh, roulette game with rates and, and, and sort of figuring out how much should we charge per hour. Because there's no exact 
right way to know how much you should charge per hour. There, I'm sure that economists would disagree with me. And to be fair, I didn't go to business school. So we've had to work, I've had to work this backwards and kind of go, well, I have X number of painters and they can produce models for X number of hours per month, but sometimes they get sick and da da da. And it gets very complicated. And so from that, we derived a some sort of studio rate, which is higher than most of our competition. Well, with this sort of system, clients are rewarded with a cheaper rate and we are rewarded for sustainable income. And we are going to keep our traditional commission system in place for people that like the old-fashioned way of doing things. Yeah. I don't, we don't plan to do away with that. Um, we may make revisions to it over time. We will certainly look for ways to make it cheaper. Um, but honestly, at the time being, the subscription-based platform, the collector, is the cheapest way to get models with us. And it's certainly the most reliable way. Um, you don't have to wait. I mean, another thing to think about is that our average turnaround on a project is four to six weeks. With the collector subscription, you're guaranteed to have your models worked on every four weeks. And if those models are completed, we're shipping them off every four weeks. Well, then by default, you're getting it 50% faster than you would have the old way. With free shipping and... Included. With free shipping and free handling. And you get all the other benefits, like 5% off or, or more in the store. You get rental vouchers starting at just the, the second level of subscription. And, and there's all sorts of other benefits you get from it. Videos and things like that, That's right. Too. Yeah. So, I mean, it really kind of works hand in hand. What we're really trying to do is develop a relationship with clients. And right. what we find is, is that with clients that come in one time and get a project... Um, if they're not satisfied with the work, we always feel bad because we try very hard to learn their preferences. But with any client, you learn their preferences better over time. So two or three commissions in, we're learning what they like. And the client is not going to always want the same thing. He's gonna, he or she is going to change their preferences too. So when a new project comes up, we start over, but we still know their general preferences. Like what we like as people is not going to change incredibly you know, I'm a burger guy. That's what I like to eat. So if I go to a different restaurant, I'm picking toppings, not changing the order. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So with a commission subscription, they're probably still going to like their models a certain way. They're just changing their faction. And so they still benefit from that. So over the years, we, we will grow with these clients. We'll build relationships. Uh, their projects will get faster by default, which means they save money. Um, so it's a win-win for everybody, really. Was there anything else you wanted to add about this before we wrap up and get to the next segment? I think the only thing I wanted to point out is that this is a pilot program. We're definitely exploring this and trying it out. Um, over the years, we've been scrutinized a lot for our rates. Um, it's worth noting that we're a very lean service. Um, we don't have a lot of employees here. We have less than a dozen employees, and most of those you know, honestly barely make a living wage. I always feel guilty about how much we can pay our employees. So this system is designed to not only make our business better, to make client lives better. So it really will be a win for everybody. And if you find the system isn't to your liking, if you try it out for a month or two and you find you don't like it, there are no cancellation fees. There's no harm, no foul. You try it for a short period. If you don't like it, the, the traditional commission system is still there. So it's really kind of, in my opinion, a no-risk loss. Um, and the different levels for the subscription service, you can find those on the White Metal Games store, correct? You can. Um, if you go to whitemetalgames.com and you click the services tab, you'll find, um, or the commissions tab rather, you'll find a link to our commission subscription service. It's called The Collector. There's five different levels. Uh, the lowest level starts at, uh, I want to say around $300 or $150 a month. And it goes up to $1,600 a month. The mm -hmm. benefit gets better with every single level. We may add more levels down the road. And we certainly may re revise these levels depending on how things go. We may offer more benefits or even reduce the price. So you'll find charts on the website that compare not only the levels to each other, 
but also commission subscriptions to traditional commissions. So you've already crunched the numbers on this, so people don't have to go and do the math. We thought a long time about this, and we really wanted to make sure that this was a good value before we launched. So we've been we've been playing with this idea for a couple months now, and and on the back of my mind, it's been a couple years, if if I'm being entirely honest. Um, We also have a very lengthy FAQ on the page because we we imagine that people would have a lot of questions. And while we're happy to answer individual questions, we put up something like 30 answers to questions that we thought people would have. Everything from what level can I get it to, to the differences, to uh, everything. Um, just So there's lots of stuff there. There's lots of resources there. And if people are ever confused about it, they can certainly reach out to me directly um, by email. Um, there's lots of links on the page. They can also go to the Contact Us page. We want this to be the right solution for the right client. It's not right. going to be for everybody, um, but I think for some people this will be the best thing they've ever done. And is there any other place they can go besides the White Metal Games store to find this? No. As far as I know, we're the only people in the world that are offering it, and this is the only way you can get it. We don't offer it through any of our other stores, just the WooCommerce store that we offer on our website. So basically, you just go to whitemetalgames.com. You go to the, uh, from the homepage now, you can actually click the monthly subscription banner and it'll take you directly to the page that's right actually I, yeah. I saw that very direct so uh, it's faster to get there it's easier to understand and again we're happy to answer any questions about this new program so over the years we've talked with a lot of different clients about pricing and one of the things that we have found more often than not is that clients can get really hung up on a number and the thing is is that let's say we have a character and we're painting that character and a lot of clients will want to compare different levels. So they'll say, what is the price at Tabletop Plus? What is the price at High? What is the price at Platinum? Or Display, rather. Um, So when it's a new model, we're really guesstimating time. And we're saying, well, I think it'll take about this long. I think it'll take about this long, and and that sort of thing. The problem is, is that this sort of system kind of penalizes clients, because if we guess wrong and the price is too high, it essentially stops the commission cold before it ever starts. Or put another way, if we tell them it's going to cost this much and that's too much for them to bear or to handle or they think it's too expensive, even if we actually are erring on the side of caution, um, then it basically ends the commission process right there, which was always very frustrating because we would get a couple emails into things with the client, we'd start to understand their desires, and then price would come up and then it would be over. And the thing is, is that the price on the model is really just a metric of time. So the nice thing about this style of service is one is it's realistic and rewards us for being diligent. And at the higher levels of subscription, the price per hour actually is almost half. So like at the highest level, if you're a completist, for example, the price per hour is only about $45 an hour, which may sound high, but when you compare that to our lower level, um, which which is $75 for only two hours a month, you really start to see the benefit there. For commissioned art, $45 is actually quite cheap. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. And the other nice thing about this is that we ran the numbers a lot and we realized that with sustainable clients at the, we can survive at the lowest levels. We can also survive at the highest levels and we can certainly survive at a mix of those levels. So if we only had, let's say, a dozen clients that were all completists, that would be enough to support our subscription service and the clients would get the best value. So, again, it's really a win-win no matter how you spin it, in my opinion. Awesome. Okay, well, we're going to wrap this segment up for right now. We'll be back in just a moment, okay?
right, we're back. We're going to kind of get into what's in the pipe right now, essentially a segment where we talk about all the things that we've got in the works, things we're producing, things we're going to be getting into. I know you can hear some of the people behind the wall that we're on the other side of. They're having a good conversation. Don't worry about it. It's a small office. (laughs) But first of all, the one thing that we were really kind of excited about producing this week, we had a Necromunda battle here in the studio where we were using some of Hunter's Orlock team versus the Vansar. Ah, those guys. Essentially, I'm guessing somewhat of a police force in Necromunda, or are these... No, 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 no. the Vansar are... Their gimmick is they deal in Xenotech. They basically have access to all these cool guns and stuff, but they're also heavily irradiated, so that's why they have, like... They have these grayed hairs or like just completely bald. Okay. Because they have a, an unnaturally short lifespan due to exposure from these somewhat volatile and experimental stuff never really meant for humans to hold on to in the first place. Exactly. So they're kind of like your glass cannon, from what I understand. They don't have a lot of toughness, not really a melee faction, but they have a buttload of high power guns and are fairly fast. We were really excited about the video that was coming down with that. I know that one of the things they wanted to do was sort of come up with an ongoing script or commentary so we could actually kind of cut the battle. We were shooting that and taking pictures of the battle as it was happening. And as I hear, your Orlock gang really, really, really won, or the Vansar were just really, really rolling poorly. I mean, spoilers here for the story that's coming up. Well, and the, the here's the thing is that I didn't build them to be competitive. I just built them. Okay, technically, I built them for kill team, but I had no idea what was good for the meta in Necromunda. It was chance, perhaps. Yeah, and they just really fared poorly, as I hear. Which ones? The Vansar versus the Orlock gang. I I think some of that had to do with the. Uh, the breaching of the doors with the, the rock grinder guy. Uh, according to Brian, he was going to town with the 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 rock cutter and basically carving open the doors like... Uh, you've seen Star Wars The Phantom Menace, right? Yeah. Well, everyone has. We're like, you know, Qui-Gon's just like cutting through the door. Mm-hmm. They're still getting through! This is getting out of hand! Yeah. yeah, so thankfully there was only one of him and uh, the Vansar were not the ones to dispatch him. Sadly, he was the victim of friendly fire. Oh, no. Yes. (laughs) All right, and I see that there's videos coming up of tutorials. I know we've got Preston working on the new Kayvon Shrike miniature for the Raven Guard. Yes. Yes, he was a bit of a surprise release. Early fall. I remember writing about it when I was doing the article on the Raven Guard. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that he had taken the Primaris treatment. What are they? Yeah, the Rubicon Primaris is what they refer to it as when an old, older veteran space marine gets upgraded into a Primaris. Uh, crossing a thing from which you can never come back is the old expression for crossing the Rubicon. Exactly, and for some space marines, they are unable to make the shift and die in the process. Wasn't the attrition rate something like sixty-one percent? I have no idea. I didn't actually read that. All I know is that Marnius Calgar of the Ultramarines, the first captain, or sorry, chapter master, uh, crossed it. It's Kosaro Khan. I remember the Ultramarine fellow. He was one who stepped up first, wasn't he? 
Oh, that sounds about right. Basically stepped him and said, I'll do it. And then he was dead on the table for 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, that's nothing for a space marine. He'd read the War of the Beast. It would see. Slaughter was dead for like a day. I thought you were dead. Oh, I got better. Yep. That kind of thing. Well, he was in a cocoon, so technically he was on like... Anyway, spoilers. X-Men got nothing on space marines, it would seem. No, that's kind of the, the, the idea is that space marines are something beyond human. Alright, welcome back. What we're going to do here is get into Hunter lore. That's what I'm calling this because it's basically lore with Hunter, who is much more steeped than I think most of us here might be. So, yeah. Well, I don't profess to know everything about the copy. I do try to... I, I follow the ones that keep me interested and stuff like that. Fair enough. I mean, that's basically how I am about the other games that I play. I follow what I know, get into what I know, and, of course remember that well. Just as a disclaimer, take everything I say with a grain of salt or look it up yourself just to verify. My word is not law. I generally hear things distilled through one or two uh, layers of... The facts and opinions here are not the official facts and opinions of Games Workshop. We will leave that disclaimer there. Absolutely. But also my knowledge may be influenced by other people's opinions or interpretations as well. I'm willing to call them well informed. Yes. Now, as far as what we wanted to get into, I know I just got an article assignment earlier this week mm -hmm. where I was talking about the Primaris Project, essentially creating bigger, better, faster, tougher space marines over the original models yes, from back in the 30 set first century, or 31st millennium, I should say. Yes, a controversial uh, change as well, I might add, in-universe and out-of-universe. The article itself, though, was supposed to be about what chapters might not be a good idea to give the Primaris treatment to. And, of course, my first thing was, well, great, what's the Primaris treatment? And then I had to set off a whole day of research getting into Primaris, getting into the different chapters that were suggested that might or might not be good about this. And I remember we were talking back and forth about this as I was looking through because I was thinking, why would these people be a bad idea? They seem like they would be great. Or, okay, if these people are a bad idea, why are, say, if the Lamenters are a bad idea to give the Primaris treatment to, why would you give that to, say, the Blood Angels? <laughs> yes. Though I would also say it's a good idea to give the Lamenters the Primaris simply because they need the bodies. More about the Primaris thing to start with. Tell me how that kind of got started. So, my information's a bit choppy in this, but basically Archmagos of the Adeptus Mechanicus. Arch this would be Call from Mars. Belisarius Call, yes. Who's this, can I say old ass? You can say old ass if you like. This <laughs> old ass tech priest Magos which is basically like the highest level kind of tech priest you can be without being the fabricator general, i.e. the head honcho of Mars on the Council of the High Lords of Terra, which he basically got spurned from as a result of this controversial research he's done. Politics. Exactly. Well, meddle with Xenotech enough and you're going to get... A little shunned. Yeah, yeah. We'll, and we'll get into that. So basically, Call gets called up by Bobby G. Rebute Gulliman. The fellow that came up with the Codex. Yes, and apparently this was his task that was given to him in the 32nd millennium. 
before Rebooty Gilliman went into a coma thanks to Fulgrim. It's like, you call, make me better Marines. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Call's been working on this for nearly ten millennia. Which I would think would be quite enough time. Mm -hmm. But he hadn't quite perfected the formula. He hadn't perfected it. He didn't have all of the Emperor's notes on the original Inception. Yeah, he basically had to try and reverse engineer the program and make it better. And I believe there were some Eldar involved. Some Harlequins uh, basically... I didn't see that. Well, they were involved in the revival of Gulliman. So Call's duty was twofold now. He needed to bring back Gulliman and create the Primaris Marines. He was able to finish both at the same time thanks to the Har- Harlequin interference. So literally, Gulliman is still alive due to science and magic working in tandem. His life support system is, is a combination of Eldar and Martian technology. That's new one on me. Actually, yes. I didn't catch that in my research at all. Yeah, yeah, it's something that not many people seem to mention. But as a result of Call's experiments, now you've got this sort of Space Marine 2.0. Yeah. Or actually, I guess you should call them t- Space Marine 3.0, since the original Space Marines were an improvement on a- another previous model. Well, those were the Thunder Wars. You could call the Thunder Warriors a prototype. Mm-hmm. So the Space Marines were the first edition, and these are the Mark IIs, the Primaris. And both in-universe and out, there's been some uh, questions raised. Like, are the Primaris going to be replacing the old models? Uh, maybe? Like, there's Eventually? Th- like, say, by attrition? Maybe, like we give it about five, eight years. I don't think we're going to see the old models completely removed from the setting. I think they still have a place and still fill an important niche. Who knows what Warhammer is going to look like five, ten years from now? I do know that they were sending out from the Terran system. They were sending out torchbearer ships. Yes, and these were ships that had the technology to upgrade existing Marines to the new ones, as well as produce new Primaris Marines on the homeworlds of all these different chapters. And weren't they these send out tech priests, the machinery, and Primaris Marines as examples who were made using the gene seeds of those particular chapters that they were going out to visit, and as they passed a homeworld of, say, this chapter, that ship would peel off and leave some there, leave yeah, some there, and they just sort package. of spread them out and seed these guys, going, hey, this is the new hotness. Try it when you try making your new recruits. Make them Primaris instead of just using the standard issue tech yeah. that you've got. And some chapters glommed onto this easier than others. The Salamanders... They uh, they often need to re- refill their ranks. Yeah, because they very selflessly throw themselves at danger to defend humanity. Mm-hmm. Whereas more traditionalist chapters, like say the Fists, may have been a bit apprehensive of it, or especially the Dark Angels. The Dark Angels did not like the Primaris Marines because uh, the Dark Angels have their dark secrets. Basically, they were probably looking at the Primaris and going, heretic. No, they were that and, like, what Mars is trying to spy on us now. Like, we have enough trouble with the Inquisition. Now we got, like, this tech priest trying to meddle in our affairs. And these poor Primaris battle brothers are just going, we just want to help. Yeah, it's like, we just want to be space marines, do space marine things. And the Dark Angels are like, you don't know the first thing about space marining. Look, you whippersnappers! (laughs) 
of course, we're getting into space marines who've been alive for maybe more than 10,000 years themselves. Uh, there aren't many of those guys left. There are a... F- a f- well, not, a f- not a handful. There's more than a handful, but per chapter there's a handful in each, I'd say. I would think that, I mean, over time, attrition would take out the old guard in favor of the new that were being raised up. Not always. Or uplifted, I guess I should say, in this case. Like, the, um... I'd say most of the ones that were around during the heresy, the horse heresy, are in dreadnoughts now. A few exceptions, of course, exist, but um, I know for a fact a few of the chapters might not even have those people left, it was namely the, the fists. So the old guard are basically, they're going to be a problem, but not a huge problem. It, it varies. It depends on the chapter's philosophy. The Dark Angels yeah. have their secrets to consider and do not trust outsiders. Well, the Ultramarines seek to employ every tool in the book and out of the book to their advantage. So naturally, and of course since it's endorsed by their own Primarch, they're going to be like, yeah, give us that, give it here. New tougher weapons, new tougher Marines, Mm -hmm. yeah, gimme, gimme, please. We'll Mm -hmm. we'll go on a nice little crusade and we'll see how it works. Mm -hmm. I imagine the Raven Guard weren't too thrilled about until they were like, wait, you got snipers? You got snipers that aren't scouts? Yeah, yeah, give it here. Okay, this... kind of overcomes our reservations regarding our own genetic experiments. It's like, sure, we've got a bigger profile, but now we, now we can shoot from you with even deadlier bullets. Yeah. I imagine the fists were probably a, had a problem with it because they were very much of the idea, this is not the Emperor's work. This is not what he intended. Exactly, yes. Um, I don't know how the Templars feel about it. They're probably disappointed at the lack of their melee prowess. <laughs> they get an extra attack, but what can they use it against? Aren't there Primaris oh, yeah. in the Death Watch now, too? Absolutely. They've been inducted. Yes, yes. The Death Watch would uh, absolutely employ those. I mean, the Death Watch is employed by the radical end of the Inquisition, so they are going to take every tool they can. They use Xenotech in the Death Watch. Yeah. Unabashedly. Like, if Call gets ousted for even dabbling in Xenotech... Like, just using it to research and applying its uh, its principles to the Primaris. Meanwhile, the Death Watch is like, yeah, we use Necron swords adapted for Space Marines. It's fine. And until they really show any bad flaws or something, I imagine it's, it's not going to go down like the 21st Founding did. The Cursed Legions. Yes, the Cursed Founding. Essentially, I, and I read about this too, where a bunch of tech marines and tech priests found an old genetic research center with a great big space marine and a couple of dead ones in there that they were experimenting on and go, this we could make much better space marines with, except the gene seed was really badly corrupted. Yes, it was tainted, and that led to some interesting successor chapters. Minotaurs, black like we, dragons, black dragons with the horns and the blades on their arms. More like like the they're like Wolverine or Baraka claws from like Mortal Kombat. Okay, I was ex- I was actually imagining bone spurs like the Nietzscheans had in Andromeda. They do. They have them. They've got like bone, they've got bone growths, but they in the fluff explicitly they have a spike that shoots out of their forearm that they can use to oh. gouge people. Okay. Yeah. And then there were the Lamenters, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. They actually had a torchbearer ship sent out to them, yeah. I found out. 
good for the Lamenters, really, because they were only down to 400 soldiers last time anybody looked. Before they went on their penitent crusade, mind you. Before they went on their penitent crusade. Against tyrannids of all things. And then you've got the sons of Anteos, who didn't really seem to have anything wrong with them other than they were just big and big mostly and indestructible. Yeah. And like the a only loyalist thing death wrong, guard. Yeah, the only thing wrong with them was that the loyalist chapters looked at the moon and like, you're a little bit too much like the death guard for me to be comfortable with. Yes. And they're like, what's wrong? We're just warriors. And ah! But the uh, accusations of mutant is very, very harshly considered. Again, take the Black Templars. Again, this is a, with a massive dose of irony to this because they, in a sense, are like genetically altered humans. Yeah. But they, <laughs> they do not tolerate anything beyond what they consider the perfect human form or any sort of sorcery. We are the perfect human form. We are the apex of human evolution. Anything past us is heresy. Mm-hmm. Of course, that will eventually take care of itself. Will it, though? Over time, I think it will. It's been 10,000 years. The Black Templars haven't uh, slowed down at all. I'm always rooting for the newer, more innovative ideas. Oh, absolutely. But the Templars have succeeded so long simply because they do not follow the rules. Their numbers are easily at almost legion strengths. They don't write down... Uh, How the, many they have. They do, but the they, they exploit a loophole. They basically, when they're on a crusade, they get to recruit more people, and they basically write them down as like neophytes. So they're not true space marines yet, oh. but they basically have almost legion strength worth of bodies. So wait a minute. Now that Gilliman's back, who set down the rules about that kind of thing, I imagine he's not pleased with that. No, but he's also like, well, they're keeping the enemy at bay, so I'm not going to sanction them just yet. I'm going to put a pin in that. You know, same thing with the Dark Angels. I take it back. I take it back. As far as Gilliman goes, he's probably not immediately pleased, but he's bent the rules before when it comes to that. Well, absolutely. He made his own miniature Imperium in the Ultramar system. People don't talk about that. Essentially, when the Battle Sisters came about to start with, it, Goge Van Dyer. Yeah, about well, when they got rid of Goge Van Dyer, he's like, well, I did set down the rule that no standing men at arms, no standing men at arms for the Ecclesiarchy, but. These are not men, so... <sighs> My spirit is wounded, but okay, fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Same thing, I guess, goes for the Black Templars. Okay, they're neophytes. Fine, fine, you get results. <laughs> the Dark Angels just don't report their numbers. Yeah. So they're at Legion Strength, too. Uh. <laughs> okay, that I think he would probably have a bit more of a problem with, because the whole people at Legion with Strength, wasn't that what kind of led to the... The Horus heresy. The heresy to start with. At least that's his reason. That was Goldman's reasoning in the first place for creating the Codex Astartes and breaking it up into chapters. A lot of these chapters are going to get an infusion of fresh blood and fresh soldiers, and they're going to be getting bigger and expanding their ranks too. And all that's got to be recorded, and all that's got to be taken into account when it comes to assessing the risk against the Imperium. Mm -hmm. What if these things turn bad? What if there's a flaw in their genetics? What if they become chaos-influenced? What are we going to do now that we've seeded all of our chapters, or at least all of our really good chapters, with these guys? Hmm. We're kind of hoping that it goes right, and I'm thinking, yeah, it probably will. It's not going to be like the 21st Founding. But was there anything else about the Primaris that you, that you had in mind before we wrap this up? So one of the things I've, uh, well, we're not, we're just talking about the lore here, right? So 
in addition to the Primaris um, just being a space ring, they have a few extra uh, few extra organs thrown in. Three, as I remember. I remember that they've got 22 organs, whereas the Space Marines have 19. Mm-hmm. Which I imagine they are also a little bit jealous of, if it works. I mean... I Depending w- on their philosophy again. Space Marines aren't terribly prone to jealousy in that regard. Like, they have they have a, a pride to them. If anything, they'd be like, we don't need this extra stuff. We're fine the way we are. Yeah. That's a human trait. Mm-hmm. You can really mutate and augment your human, but you can't take the human out of the shell you've bred him into. Mm-hmm. And really, I think that's it, isn't it? I think so, yeah. All right, we'll stop that here and get into our next segment in just a little bit. War Council is a hobby-centered podcast for miniature enthusiasts of role-playing games, games workshop-oriented wargaming, as well as model building and painting of all genres and types and is a presentation of White Metal Games. You can find our video streams on Twitch and YouTube. You can also subscribe to our more premium video content, tutorials, and exclusives at whitemetalgames.com video membership. If we're on, you can even subscribe to our Discord server or Twitter and talk to us there. You can also visit our ongoing blog at whitemetalgames.com blog and our online store at whitemetalgames.com. You can also find our other stores on eBay, Etsy, and Shapeways for 3D printed content. And if you actually want to see some examples of our artists' work, you can have a look at photos by following us on Instagram, Flickr, and Tumblr, all of which you can find by clicking the handy buttons at the top of our website. If you'd like to support this podcast, do have a look at our Podbean patronage page at warcouncil.podbean.com, as well as patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash whitemetalgames, you can even donate directly through PayPal. That's paypal.me slash whitemetalgames. If you'd like to get in touch with us with comments or suggestions, please do. You can email us directly at info at whitemetalgames.com. Thanks for listening. get into a little thing we're going to call crackpot theories from now on because why not it's just basically talking about stuff we think we've heard or stuff we think we were extrapolated from what we've heard i'm guessing or in my case something that makes perfect sense to me and possibly only me okay so we were talking about the psychic awakening earlier mm-hmm. and previously when they first announced it they were showing all the factions that were going to be affected by it two of which include the necrons and the tau empire now, as anyone who plays Warhammer 40k knows, the Necrons and the Tau do not have psychers. They have they no don't? psychic powers. Absolutely none. Okay. The Necrons uh, instead have the Catan shards, which are like shattered forms of their gods that are in lieu of psychic powers. They use them during the psyker phase. So there's a chance that we could see more stuff for the Catan. Catan, Catan, Satan, however you want to pronounce it. I was calling it Satan when I was reading it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Settlers of Catan. <laughs> anyway. Um, and the Tau, of course, do not have 
any psychic powers of their own. There, I believe in previous lore it was referenced that their psychic presence is slim to none. Like, they're not, they don't even register on most things, which is partially why they haven't had any demon incursions, and they're still able to believe that demons don't exist. That surprises me. I'd have thought if anybody would have been psychically active, it would have been the Tau, and that they seem to have this greater good hive mentality going. Well, uh, again, sort of like a philosophy has nothing to do with psychic powers. So I have somewhat of a sort of like a quasi-Shinto Buddhist philosophy. That makes a lot more sense. They are not actually spiritual in that regard. They have no... They have their ethereals, which are able to dictate and sort of inspire them via pheromonal control. But here's here's where my crackpot theory begins. I've got one for both of these guys. Okay. We could be seeing the ethereals sort of metaphorically grow a third, or literally grow a third eye, so they might actually become full-on psychers with oh. this uh, psychic awakening going on. It would complement their uh, ethereal nature, as their name implies. Okay. Or, or even more crackpot, this is near and dear to my heart, okay? It's Kroot Psychers. Kroot Psychers. Tell me about Kroot. Kroot are carnivorous birdmen that have to eat sapient oh, races. Oh, Okay. Yes. yes. They have to eat sapient races or else they become dumb animals. They can sift through the genetic structure of other, other creatures and introduce them into their own systems, much like a, a gene stealer. Psychic carrion birds. Exactly. Not carrion predators. That's nightmarish. <laughs> Absolutely. You have you have effectively what are bipedal cassowaries that have a hunger for for people with brains. So here's another here's my other crackpot the other theory crackpot for theory. <laughs> for the Necrons. The Necrons are going to see the return of the pariahs. I remember reading about the pariahs a little bit when I was doing the Halloween post, but I don't remember what exactly they were. So, okay, old 40k fluff. Prior to the Necrons being sort of redacted or adjusted to take on a Egyptian flavor, which mm-hmm. complements their like massive floating uh, pyramid-like arcs and yeah. their skeletal immortal nature, mm-hmm. before they were... Uh, Terminator mummy zombie, they were just space Terminator uh, skeletons. Okay. So they have got, they've now had the sort of ancient two dynasty uh, thing sort of introduced. Nationalist xenophobic Terminator zombies. Yes. Or no, 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 they're not even nationalists. They just hate life. Ah, okay. They despise life. Nihilists, then. Absolutely. Okay. Especially the destroyers. The destroyers had this old rule. Where, which was called uh, hatred, but everything could have like hatred, where it's like okay, like hatred tyranids, hatred uh, imperium, like you'd have that on certain uh, characters. Destroyers just had hatred everything. Is it alive? <laughs> then we hate it. Yes. Uh. They'd get to reroll wounds on anything. Effectively, Daleks. <laughs> yeah. No, that I would not be surprised if Doctor Who had a hand in forming the uh, the Necrons old fluff. Back to the crackpot Back theory. Back to the crackpot theory. With the... In the old in the olden times of the Necron players, you had these things called pariahs, which are basically former humans that had been necronified. They have their scarabs can do this sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, it's just the ne- the bulk of the Necrons are no, 
are formerly known as the Necron Tier. Those people were quite nationalist, as I remember. Yeah, yeah, these they were humanoid, uh, tall humanoids that lived on a sun-scorched planet, this barren wasteland where they basically the sun was basically death to them. They would like uh, just get burned, baked, and just like it, it, it was a harsh existence for them. I remember they kind of got into a pact with Seton or Yes, back when and they that's were sort what of like, got them into the whole Necron phase in the first place and their kind of souls have been put into these metal shells or walking sarcophagi. Yes, yes, the Seton uh basically sort of fed off the radioactive energy of the stars and basically the Necrons sort of like called them down and made a pact with them, gave them bodies. Uh, with their ancient uh, space tech. Mm-hmm. And the Satan were like, all right, and we'll give you moral bodies too, but we're going to put your souls into them. And then suddenly they got a taste for souls like, well, shit, these are even tastier than stars. We're, we're going to get into this now. Exactly. And then there was like some of the, the higher Necron overlord, lords and overlords were able to mount an effective rebellion against them and basically shatter them. But this also kind of put them into a shutdown state. Uh, the Silent King was their ruler. Who For 11 billion years, wasn't it? Yes, yes. The uh, This was called the War in Heaven. Basically, the Necrons and their immortal uh, overlords, the, the Satan, were waging war across the galaxy against the Eldar and the Orcs. Um, we're not going to get into how the Eldar and Orcs were on the same side. That's another story for another time. Yeah. But basically, um, when the Necrons reawoke in the 41st millennium and saw that their uh, land was being ca- squatted on by these youngster Zuma races, they decided to take things back. They awoke and saw life kind and deemed it unfit for survival. Yes. <clears throat> they, had these, uh, they had these units called pariahs which were basically psychic blanks. If you're familiar with the blanks, yes. they're exclusive to humanity, which basically are have an anti-soul. Like an, they're terrifying to be around for people with souls, and demons are flipping terrified of them. Mm-hmm. The Necrons basically... Cultivated that? They basically assimilate them into uh, Necron husks so that their presence is amplified... And is basically instigates this sort of fear into anything nearby. Uh, one of the novels illustrates this effect, which is uh, one of the Caiaphas Cain stories. I be- believe is like the beneath the ice or something. Okay, I'll take your word for this. This is mm-hmm. something I, that's way out of my purview. Yeah, fun fact: um, Caiaphas Cain fears no man, no demon, or orc or xenos, except for necrons. Necrons are the single most terrifying thing for for Cain, and that's saying something for someone who stared down a demon prince or two in his lifetime. Okay. Yes. Honestly, I find myself more and more interested in playing a necron thing someday, Mm -hmm. the more I hear about them. The old necrons were, like, what, what was the line? It can't be reasoned with bargained with it just keeps coming and it absolutely will not stop until she is dead yeah that's that's pretty much the old ones now now the um the rank and file necrons are more or less this but the lords and overlords are given lent some eccentricities 
such as uh, Nemesor Zandrek, who still thinks he's a Necrontier, thinks the orcs have painted themselves, or basically other Necrontier who have painted themselves green, and uh, insists on code of chivalry. Basically, the Necron equivalent of Don Quixote. <laughs> yes, and he has his own. Uh, was it Sancho or Pancho? Sancho Panza. Sancho Panza. He has his own one of those to keep him in line. He's apparently the only <laughs> Necron who can actually fight orcs and win reasonably because he's just as loony as they are. But back to the crackpot theory. The crackpot theory is pariahs have been out of the game for practically a decade now. They've They haven't been referenced. They've been re- replaced by like Triarch Praetorians. Like, they had the Lich Guard and the Pariahs, which were the old kits you could build them. But they've kind of been moved out. My theory is they're coming back. The Pariahs are going to be part of the Necron Psychic Awakening as a sort of return. And you can now field them and basically say, you don't get any psychic powers. You don't get any psychic powers. Great. Essentially a nullifying element to introduce into the board. They don't fight with psychic powers. They just make sure everyone else cannot. Exactly. That would be interesting. That actually would be a lot more interesting to me as someone looking into wanting to play with Necron eventually. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little surprised hearing myself going, I want to play these people. Oh, absolutely. They're very they're very easy to like. Well, let's leave the crackpot theories for now. We'll be back in a moment. This is Two Minute Rant. So, ranting. It's the pre-holidays part of the year. I suppose it's gonna be this. Whamageddon. Now, I spent a goodly portion of last year's two months explaining what this is. You see, if you're not familiar with the practice by now, the music industry tends to have artists who are really going places cut a Christmas single. You know the deal. You're minding your own business in the middle of getting your groceries, or getting gas for your car, or whatever, and then this tinkly major key cover of some Christmas carol or other comes across in contemporary musics with a beat on the PA. And suddenly you realize your new favorite artist on the radio has had it happen to them, too. They've joined the Christmas War, and they're on the wrong side. You see, the late George Michael and Andrew Ridgely had a group called Wham! in the 1980s. And if you think about a couple of guest underwear models with tenor voices and sex appeal to anyone who likes mesomorphs like them doing bubblegum pop, then you've got the right idea. And they did a Christmas single, Last Christmas. It's a saccharine piece of peppermint and gingerbread excrement that fairly screams, Use this song for your Christmas sale commercials or inoffensive retail outlet music this year. Ugh. Anyway, starting December 1st, Whamageddon means you have to avoid hearing Last Christmas until midnight, December 24th. Covers or remixes don't count, but you're out if you recognize that you're hearing the actual Wham version of the song. Then you gotta post on social media that you've been sent to Whamhalla. Tips? If you're going to any place that has background music or television or whatever, take headphones. Have them in at all times. Have your music playing to avoid this earworm holiday scourge. Luck in battle, listeners. Yea, do I hear the songs of my fathers. Yea, does the beat rock me into Valhalla, where the guitars sing and the beat doth flow. This has been Two Minute Rant. (laughs) 
And that will just about do it for War Council this week. I'd like to thank you all for dialing us in. We should be back in mid-December with more reports on the exciting things we've got going on here at White Metal Games, as well as what's coming soon in the areas of gaming we cover. Make sure and get over to the White Metal Games online store so you can take advantage of our Black Friday and Cyber Monday 10% off everything in the store specials before they expire. And if you'd like to read more of what I do here at White Metal, you can go to our webpage and find my ongoing blog under Everything Else. I'd like to hope you'll have a damn good and safe holiday with you and yours. We'll see you again in December. Until then, be safe, roll crits.